Well, as David said, my text this morning will be uh, 1 Corinthians 13, so if you would open your Bibles there, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 13, verses 4 through uh, 7, if you're using one of the uh, Pew Bibles, uh, we will be on page 960. Uh, we have uh, been working our way uh, through this text for uh, a few weeks now. Uh, to this point in our study, we have seen that, that love is patient. Uh, we have seen, in other words, that it is slow to anger, that it is willing to in, endure evil from others without returning evil in kind. We, we've seen not only that, that it is patient, but it is also kind. That is, that it not only is, endures evil from others, but it actually seeks the good of those who are doing the evil. Love is, is willing to seek the good, even of the one who is actively seeking uh, its own harm. We've seen that love does not envy, that it, uh, it does not uh, feel resent towards others who have what it does not, but rather it rejoices with those who rejoice and delights in the joy of others. We've seen that love does not boast. That is, it, it does not uh, look at the things that it has been blessed with, the things that it has been freely given, and think that somehow those gifts uh, suggest that it is better than anybody else. And so it is not arrogant. It, it does not regard itself as better and demand that, that others regard it as better. And we've seen that love is not rude. Not only that it has good manners, but that it treats other people as they deserve to be treated. It regards others as image bearers of God, worthy of honor, worthy of respect, worthy of love. People created by God in His image who are precious in His sight. And this morning we come to the next phrase in this text, that love does not insist on its own way. So let us pray and ask God. Uh, that He uh, would open our minds and our hearts, that we might understand this portion of His Word. Father God, we do uh, rejoice in Your goodness to us. And we do thank You that You are at work in us. That You are causing our love to abound more and more. That You are more and more conforming us to this portrait that Paul paints for us in these verses. And so, Father, we pray that as we turn our attention to this one particular phrase this morning, uh, that You would open our minds and our hearts to receive the truth, to be shaped by the truth, and to bring forth its fruit in our lives. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together uh, one more time. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things endures all things. As we read those words, I don't think that we can help but be captivated by the image that Paul is presenting with us. It is a glorious portrait of Christian love. This this is an image that that anyone would be drawn to, but the, the question just sort of lingers out there. What is it that Paul expects us to do with these verses? Technically speaking, there are no imperatives here. There's, there's nothing that Paul's actually telling us to do. And so what does he expect us to do with this portrait? 
Well, as I've said in previous weeks, we are able to answer that question when we remember the context, when we remember the flow of what is going on here. Remember that the, this, this portrait of Christian love comes in the middle of a discussion of spiritual gifts. The, the Corinthians had asked Paul about spiritual gifts. They had asked Paul whether there was a, a particular gift that was better than the others, or whether there was a particular gift that, that was the sure sign that a person was uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, or whether there was some sign that every Christian had to have in order to demonstrate that they were truly spiritual. And Paul says, listen, the gifts are good, and the the gifts are blessings from God, and they are all needed. But the most excellent way, the defining characteristic of a spiritual person is not this or that gift, but rather the defining mark of a spiritual person. The the true characteristic of of a true Christian filled with the Holy Spirit is Christian love. This is what it looks like to be a Spirit-filled person. This is what it looks like when when a person walks in step with the Spirit. They they walk in Christian love. They they walk in a love that is patient and and kind. A love that that does not envy or boast. A love that, that matches up with the picture that Paul gives us here in these verses. And there's a promise in that. What Paul is saying is, listen, that if you have the Spirit, if you have believed on Jesus Christ and you have been filled with His Spirit, this is what He is making you. This is what He is conforming you to. This is the the good that He is working in you. Paul tells us in Ephesians that He chose us before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless in His sight. That is God's end game. That is God's plan for those whom He has called to Himself. He is making them holy and blameless. And that holiness, that blamelessness, that, that perfection is defined by Christian love. And so when we read these verses, we are, we are catching a glimpse of what we will one day be. Of what God is in the process of, of making us. But what are we to do in the, the meantime? What are we to do in, in the meantime as, as we recognize that we don't always measure up? There might be a part of us that says, well, well, maybe what we're supposed to do is just sort of sit back and wait for, for God to zap us. Maybe if we just sort of sit back and maybe, you know, throw a few prayers in there, we can, we can just wait for God to make us into this. And, and there's a sense, of course, in which we can only become this if God makes us into it. But we have to remember that, that God works through means. And it is Paul himself who says that even as God is at work in us, we are to be at work too. We are to be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to be working to bring our lives into conformity with this image. That's why we've been taking the time to to go through it phrase by phrase. We we recognize that if we just sort of threw through all this this description and we we sort of defined each characteristic and then moved on, we wouldn't really have time to process. We wouldn't have time to think. We wouldn't have time to examine ourselves. And so we've slowed down at this point and said, all right, well, let's, let's really think about what does it mean to be patient? What does it really mean for us to be kind? And let's, let's examine our lives and, and see where our lives are out of accord. And then we can go to work in the power of the Holy Spirit to put off, that's the language that Paul uses, to put off those things that are earthly, to put off those things that are out of accord with Christian love, and to put on more and more, more and more consistently, more and more faithfully, these attributes that Paul say define the spiritual person. So that's what we've been doing. At least I hope that's what we've been doing. Uh, week 
by week as we have gone through this description. We have, we have been giving ourselves margin. We have given ourselves breathing room to, to think about what Paul says and to examine our lives and to say, where is my life out of accord and how can I bring it in line with what God has said? And so this morning we take up the next phrase in Paul's description so that again we might examine ourselves. And this time the phrase comes there in verse 5 where it says, Love does not insist on its own way. That's the, the translation that the ESV has, the English Standard Version that we use here uh, at, at Trinity. has. Love does not insist on its own way. If you're using a, another translation, you, you might it might read just a little bit differently because... A more literal translation might say something like this. A more literal translation of what Paul writes would say, Love does not seek itself. Love does not seek itself. And and that's actually reflected in some of the other English translations. For example, the the King James Version and the American Standard Version both have, Love seeketh not its own. And the New American Standard got rid of the seeketh and just says this, It does not, love does not seek its own. And even the NIV has, love is not self-seeking. And I have to say, while I love the ESV, I actually prefer some of those other translations. I prefer those translations that emphasize this idea that love does not seek its own. You see, I think what Paul is, is telling us here is bigger than simply not demanding its own way, not insisting on, on having it its own way. I, I think that's included. You know, love is not like the child on the playground who, who demands that everybody play his game by his rules or else he's going to take his ball and go home. You know, there's nothing loving about that approach to life. There's nothing loving about demanding that other people do things your way. But I think what Paul says is, is bigger than this. Not seeking your own is bigger than simply not demanding your own way. But rather, when Paul talks about not seeking your own, what he has in mind is that love, not only does it not insist on its own way, but it rather doesn't even insist on its own interest. It it seeks the interest of others before itself. It, It seeks the advantage of the other before it looks for its own advantage. Love puts the, the, the good of others ahead of its own good. It makes the blessing of others the priority. And we see this when we look at the way that Paul uses a very similar phrase earlier in this letter. Keep a a finger in 1 Corinthians 13, but turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 23, Paul is addressing the question of food sacrificed to idols. And in his discussion of food sacrificed to idols, he he uses a very similar phrase. Let me read these verses for us. Beginning at verse 23 of chapter 10, Paul writes, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good. There it is. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but 
his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as you try to please everyone in everything, I, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, there it is again, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So I think as we look at this passage and we look at Paul's discussion of a topic that, that really probably seems a little bit remote to us, but as, as, we, as we consider what Paul has to say about how you are to uh, address the question of food sacrifice to idols, I think it will help us understand what he means when he says, love seeks not its own. Now, you have to understand that, that the, the question of food sacrificed to idols, and particularly meat sacrificed to, to idols, that was a, a very hot topic in Paul's day, and especially in uh, cities that were uh, not predominantly Christian. Paul didn't live in the, in the south of the United States. He, 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 he lived in, a, in an area that was um, you know, just filled with all sorts of other religions. In fact, in Paul's day, it's likely that all of the meat available in any city was probably at some point used as a sacrifice. Animals were not as plentiful as they are today, and therefore they weren't going to waste an animal uh, by not sacrificing. If they were going to butcher uh, an animal to have some meat for a sacrifice, uh, meat for a, fee- a meal, they were going to sacrifice it first just to make sure that the animal served double duty. And so it was unlikely that there was any meat available in the city of Corinth that had at some point been sacrificed to an idol. And so the question was raised in the Corinthian church. What are we to do about this? Should we eat meat or not? Should we eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? And there were some in the Corinthian church who said, well, of course we can eat the meat. You know, an idol's not really anything. An idol is, is a false god. You know, an idol's nothing. And therefore, what does it matter if this food was sacrificed to nothing? Of course we can eat. And there were others like, well, no, that doesn't make any sense. You know, you know, idols, idol worship's bad. You know, we're not supposed to participate in idol worship. Therefore, we ought not to eat the meat. And of course, this is one of the questions that the church poses to Paul in the letter. And, and you, you get an idea of at least one side of the discussion from the phrase, all things are lawful. You see, this seems to be the, the catchphrase for at least one group of the Corinthians. In the ESV, at least, that that verse is set off in quotations because most commentators agree that when Paul writes those words, all things are lawful, he's actually quoting the Corinthian letter that had been sent to him. He says, you say all things are lawful. And, And that was their take. They say, we're saved by grace. We're saved apart from works. Therefore, all things are lawful. We can do whatever we want. In fact, our willingness to do whatever we want is a testimony to how profound our understanding of grace is. We saw this earlier in the letter. Remember, all the way back in chapter 5, Paul had to address uh, the the church's uh, willingness to uh, tolerate gross immorality amongst its members. There was gross immorality going on in the church. And, and not only were they not ashamed of it, they actually boasted about it. They, they said, hey, look at who we will allow to be members of our church. Don't we understand grace? We don't require behavior of people. We let people do. We have open minds and open hearts and we just accept everybody. And Paul said, no, <laughs> that's not the way the gospel works. 
That's not the way the gospel works. And here it is again. They're saying, listen, what does it matter what we do? Why does it matter what we eat? All things are lawful. We're saved by grace. And Paul says, no, that's not the way grace works. All things are lawful, you say, but not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. And then he sets forth the principle there in verse 24. Here is the principle by which Christians should live. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That which defines your life, that which determines the way you live, that which structures the choices that you make on a daily basis ought not to be your own good, but the good of your neighbor. And so what does that mean in a situation like this? What does it mean in a situation where food has been sacrificed to idols? That's a safe illustration for us to use because it, you know, I've never once been worried about whether or not the steak at, you know, Bilo was sacrificed to an idol or not. So it's, it's a safe discussion. So, so what does Paul say here? How does this principle set forth in verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but rather the good of his neighbor, how does that principle inform the way we think about eating meat? And here's what Paul says. The the principle is fairly straightforward. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. That's kind of the starting point. He says, you people who say that it doesn't matter if if a steak has been sacrificed to an idol, he says, you're right. You're right. Eat Eat whatever you buy. If you go to the meat market and you want to buy a roast or you want to buy a steak, buy it. Eat it. It doesn't matter what the person who's selling it to you did with it before they brought it to the market. You're free. You're free. I'm sure at this point the people who had written the letter on that side were all you know, cheering. Yes, yeah, see, Paul agrees with us. But then he doesn't stop. He, 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 keeps, he keeps going. So when you're by yourself, eat what you want. All right, but what's the next thing he says? And if you go to an unbeliever's house and they invite you and they set before you meat, again, eat whatever's set before you. Eat whatever's set before you. So when you go to the market yourself, buy whatever you want. When you go to an unbeliever's house, eat whatever is set before you because you, know, you, don't, have to, you don't have to worry about being defiled by something that's been sacrificed to a false god. All right, but here is where the principle takes hold. Because notice what he says in verse 28. He said, you can buy whatever meat you want, and you can eat whatever your neighbor sets before you, but, verse 28, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat. Then do not eat for the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of his conscience. Do not eat. So what's going on there? How can Paul say, you can go to the market and buy whatever you want, you can even eat whatever your neighbor sets before you without raising questions of conscience, but the moment they tell you that this was sacrificed to an idol, now you don't eat. Now you refuse to participate. What's what's going on? Well, think about what that informing means. This isn't something that they just sort of said in passing, but they, they have now announced that this meal is a sacrificial meal to a false god. It's no longer just eating meat that happens to have been sacrificed to an idol in the past at some point, but now they have turned this meal into a sacrificial meal. And they said, by, by eating this meal, we are participating in the worship of some other God. And Paul says, at that point, you have to stop. You have to not participate. Why? Why? If you know that an idol is nothing, you know, th- then why should it matter to you that this is a sacrifice to a false 
God. And he says, listen, it's for the sake of conscience. Not your conscience, but his. How is he going to come to understand the the exclusive claims of the one true God? How is he going to come to understand that, that God will not tolerate rivals, that he will not share his glory with another? How will he come to understand that there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved? How will he come to understand that there is only one true God who must be worshiped through his one true son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the one spirit? How will he come to understand that if he sees those who claim to be followers of this one true God, participating in the worship of all kinds of other gods, the same as everybody else. How will he not be led to the conclusion that this God fits in the pantheon along with all the other gods, and that, yeah, you probably should pay him some homage too, but you know, don't forget these other gods, because if you forget the other gods, they might get mad. How will his understanding of the truth not be compromised if you participate in this sacrificial meal? And so the principle that Paul is setting forth is he says, listen, you have freedom. You have freedom. You understand that this food being sacrificed to idols doesn't matter for the sake of yourself. And so if you are eating alone with your family or if you are eating with a neighbor who doesn't make a big deal about it, go ahead and eat without raising questions. But if they announce to you that this is a sacrificial meal to to a false god, then do not participate that you might not harm them. And that's the principle. Who are you concerned about? Whose good controls your decision? Whose uh, interests are now determining what you will and will not do? You see, if if you're controlled by your own interests, if you're seeking your own good and you happen to like steak, well then, you're going to eat. But Paul says, it's not your interests that are in control here. It's not your desires, it's not your good that that determines what you do, but rather you operate with a perspective that says, I live for the sake of the other. I give myself, I give up my rights, I give up my freedoms, I am willing to be constrained for the good of the other. In fact, that's what Paul says he does. Notice at the very end, he says, give no offense just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. In fact, Paul expands on that to some, uh, at some length in his next letter to the, the Corinthians. And he says, listen, when I'm among the Jews, I live like a Jew so as not to give offense. But then he quickly reminds, that doesn't mean that I give in to their beliefs. I, I'm still a Christian, but I live like a Jew. And he says, when I'm among pagans, I, I live like a pagan, not participating in their morality. I'm still a follower of Christ. But, but, I, but I don't uh, you know, adhere strictly to, um, to the Jewish customs, and I don't demand that my, my Jewish brothers and sisters follow those same laws in order for me to, to fellowship with them. When I'm among the Gentiles, I live like a Gentile. Why? Because my ambition, my desire is their good, is their interests. And that's what controls. I don't allow my preferences. I don't allow my, uh, my, what pleases me to be the controlling influence in, in what shapes my life. That's what Paul means when he says, love seeks not its own. Love is not controlled by its own desires, by its own interests, by its own good, but rather it allows its life to be shaped by the interests and the good of others. So Paul says, this is the basic principle. And we learn this principle from none other than Christ himself. He says, be an imitator of me, even as I am an imitator of 
Christ. It was Christ who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, humbled Himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, that He might redeem us from the curse of the law, that He might provide us with a life that we did not deserve, that He might purchase for us a blessing that we had forfeited and had instead earned for ourselves condemnation. Christ Himself is the one who did not seek His own, but sought the good of others. Jesus says it. He says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And that is a picture of the love that we are called to. Obviously, we don't lay our lives down in atonement for others. That was done once for all by Christ. But in Christ, we are now called to give ourselves away to be a blessing to others. We are now called to allow the good of others to define our lives, to shape our lives rather than our own interests. So that's the question that we are being posed with this morning. That is, the, that is the challenge that is set before us. As we examine ourselves, as we look closely at our own lives, we must ask ourselves, whose interests shape our lives? Whose good defines our days? Whose, whose blessing determines our career choices? Determines the, the choice of where we're going to live, our, our house. Determines the, the car we're going to drive. Determines the clothes that we're going to, to wear. Paul says it doesn't matter. Those those types of choices are not exempt. Whatever you do, whether you eat or or drink, whatever you do, you are to do it to the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. At no point are you to allow your interest to control and to define your life. It's not that we just set aside a certain day or a certain amount of time or a certain amount of money and, and we devote those to the good of others and the rest is ours. No, when we, when we give our offering on Sunday morning, we are giving the first fruits, we're told in Scripture. The, the first part of the harvest. Why do we give the first fruits? Well, because by giving the first fruits, we are announcing that the whole harvest is at His disposal. When we give the first fruits, we are announcing that this, is, this has been a stewardship entrusted to us. This is not ours. Even our own lives are not ours. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Our lives are at His disposal. And so the question we must ask ourselves is whose interests shape our lives? Because Paul says Christian love allows the glory of God and the good of neighbor to shape its life, to shape its choices, to, to shape what it does, even down to what it eats and what it drinks. Now as we hear that, as we try to unpack that, as we try to understand that, we, we do have to offer a couple of, of clarifications because this is, this is one of those points where you know, it's, it's easy to sort of go off the rails as we try to figure out well, what exactly does that really mean? What would it look like to live a life that was so devoted to the good of the other? There have been those uh, throughout history who said, well, if you're really going to do this, if you're really going to devote your love, your life to, to the good of the other, if you're really going Christ- to you know, live in Christian love, then, then you need to sort of quit your job and become a Franciscan monk. You, know, you need to go into the monastery. You need to sort of devote yourself to, to that type of life. So let me say, I don't think that's what Paul is calling us to. He isn't calling us all to, to become Franciscan Monks. Now, let me say, there is a place 
there is a place for us, there is a place for those who devote their lives to, to that sort of service. There is a place for those who, who give their lives to that sort of mercy ministry. And we are thankful. We support many who, who do that here at this church. We are thankful for the people who, who give their lives serving at the refuge or at the caring place or at the shelter. We, we are thankful that there are people who are called to that. But we also recognize that the work that those people are doing is largely supported by people who are doing other sorts of work. And so from just a pragmatic perspective, we recognize that not everyone, not everyone can, can devote their life to that sort of ministry. But there's more than just a pragmatic consideration here. It's not just the, the pragmatic consideration that somebody has to make the money. There's, there's also a theological consideration here. And the theological consideration is this, that God created work. He created the jobs that you do to be one of the primary ways that you serve the interests of others. Do you recognize that? You know, the job that you go to, the, the job that takes up you know, close to half of your waking hours, that job is a blessing. And the way God's blessings work is that His blessings flow into us, through us, to others. He blessed you with a job that you might be a blessing to others. Your, your work is a way to serve the common good of your neighbor. This is, this is true of those who have service jobs. They, they, they serve their neighbor. Those, you know, people who do yard work. They, they do yard work. They make their living doing yard work so that other people can make their living doing other things without having to spend their time cutting their own grass. And that may seem silly to you, like, well, it's just laziness that people don't want to cut their own grass. But no, this is, this is a blessing. It's a blessing when, when people serve food. It's, it's a blessing when people manufacture things. Manufacturing jobs are a way to, to bless. It's actually good that there are people who, who make cars. And it's, it's good that there are people who, who build houses. And it's good that there are people who make clothes and, and even pretty clothes. We don't all have to you know, wear the, the drab, uh, you know, black and white. We, we can... We can enjoy the things that God has created. And, and the jobs that we do are actually a way of loving our neighbors. And so we need to recognize that this doesn't mean that we all you know, quit our jobs and become Franciscan monks, but it does mean that we have to ask ourselves, especially those of you who are at the sort of beginning of your career, maybe even still before the beginning of your career, and you're, you're thinking about what you want to do, you need to ask yourself, you need to think about the fact that you you work not, not to serve yourself, not, not to serve your own good, but you work to serve the good of others. That is your ambition. That's, that's what your job is for, to, to serve the common good of the community in which God has placed you. And so we, we do not seek our own, even in the work that we do. This isn't just about us making a comfortable living. This is about us serving the good of the people whom God has put us in community with. The second misunderstanding of what it might mean to devote your life to the good of others is this idea that, well, if we're really going to devote our lives to the good of others, we have to take a vow of poverty. You know, it's, it's related to the previous one. You know, that, that not only do we have to devote our life to, to mercy ministry and to, to serving others, but we actually have to devote to not having anything our, ourselves. And, and, and we are thankful when we hear a preacher say, well, you know that command that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler? You know that command about selling everything? You don't have to do that. You know, you don't have to do that. That, wasn't, that, was, that was not a command for everybody. You ever heard that sermon? You know, when, we, when that text actually gets preached on, you know, the first thing that we say, and sometimes the only thing we say, is, well, you don't actually have to do that. You know, because Jesus didn't actually mean that, that anybody should sell everything they have and, and give it to the poor. And we're, and we're thankful 
that we don't have to, to do that. And, and we probably want to do more with that text than just recognize that we don't have to, to do it. It is actually true that, that he does not call all people to sell all that they have and give to the poor. He does not call us to take a vow of poverty. But again, we probably should, should examine our lives more closely. We should ask ourselves, what are we using our wealth for? What are we using our wealth for? What are we using the money that has been entrusted to us for? Because Paul says that love will use that which has been entrusted, the material good that has been entrusted to it, for the good of others. And and that may look like buying less. I had a family in my church in in St. Louis who who actually, through the study of God's Word, decided they were going to sell their house and they were going to buy something smaller so that they would have more to share with others. And in the time that I was there at that church, they actually went through that process of selling their house and, and buying something smaller. But there are also people who actually look to buy something bigger because they have the interest of others in mind. I will tell you that when, when Sarah and I moved here, one of the things that we were looking for in a house is we were looking for a house that was big enough that we could have lots of you over at one time. You know, that we could actually have a small group that met in our house. And so we bought something that was probably bigger than what our family might have needed. And I think that was right. I think that was good. We were seeking the interest of others. There's a place and a, and a time for that. There's a time where it might look like, you know, that you are giving away part of your income. Hopefully you are, you are giving a tithe, but more than, and even more than a tithe. That you are, you are giving beyond the tithe. You are giving your offerings to the Lord. You are, you are giving uh, to the needs of others out of the abundance that God has given you. But there will also be times where actually spending your money to buy stuff will be a way of loving your neighbor. I've used the illustration before, but I think it's telling. There's a, there's a story uh, regarding uh, one of the Wesley brothers. I think it was Charles. And, uh, you know, Charles Wesley came home one afternoon, and uh, he, he had, that afternoon he had bought a painting to hang on his wall. And no sooner did he get home than, then, than he noticed that the, the lady who had been cleaning his house was leaving without an adequate coat. And he immediately felt guilty for buying the painting to hang on his wall. He said, this money could have been given to buy a coat for that lady. And there was, there was something right about that motivation, but maybe not right about that thinking, because what he didn't recognize is that buying that painting had probably bought a coat for the daughter of the artist who had painted it. And one of the ways that we sometimes serve the good of our neighbor is actually by participating in the economy, by, by, by buying things. Now, It'd be nice if there was just sort of a neat calculus where like, okay, here's what, we, here's what we can spend on ourselves and here's what we can't, but it doesn't work that way. Before the Lord, day by day, we have to decide, what is my motivation? What interests are shaping my life? Whose good is determining what I choose to do on a day-to-day basis? Because that's the question that Paul is forcing us to wrestle with. And I'll tell you, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. It's a, it's a hard Question to answer. I struggle daily with, with the, uh, the temptation to put my own interests first. It's, it's the way that I am wired in my sinful nature. And I thank God that, that He is at work in me and that He is transforming my heart. But at the same time, I recognize He is far from done. Because in the drop of a hat, I can revert back to being concerned only about myself. And so why? Why would anyone go through the effort? Why would we, why would we take this burden upon ourselves? Because isn't that the way we see it? Oh, what a heavy burden. We have to always be thinking about the good of others. We never get to be thinking about our own. And the world hears that, and they, they can't hear it as anything other than a prison sentence. 
And so we have to ask ourselves, did Jesus tell us this? Does Jesus call us to this sort of love because he hates us? Is he calling us to this as a, as a burden? Doesn't he himself say, my yoke is easy and my burden is, is light? And it brings us back to the image of Christ himself. Why are we called to imitate Christ? We are called to imitate Christ because Christ is the perfect man, the perfect image of God. And in his life, he shows us what we were created to be. He shows us how we were created to live. And he says, follow me. Not that we might endure suffering all our days, but that we might know the path of true life. You see, we don't follow Jesus in order to earn life. We follow Jesus because his way is the way of life. And he invites us, he says, come, follow me. Because I tell you now, it is better to give than to receive. It's the way you were designed. It's the way I created you. Your joy will be found in giving yourself away for the good of others. The world whispers all sorts of other things in our ears. The world tells us we have to look out for number one. It tells us that if if you love this way, you will be deprived of all good. And it's a lie. It is a lie that darkens our minds. It is a lie that leads us into death. Jesus says, lose your life for my sake. Come after me, and I promise you, you will find true life indeed. You will find life, and you will find it abundantly. Because I created you in my image, and I am a God who delights to give myself away. And you too will find your delight in giving yourself away for the good of others. And so it's because He loves us that He calls us to love as we have been loved. And the question that we must ask ourselves is simply, do we, do we believe Him? Do we believe Him? Do we let His words dwell in us richly? Do we let His words renew our minds? Or do we believe the world when it says you better look out for number one because if you don't, you'll miss out? That's the lie of Satan. Jesus says, lose your life Lose your life, follow me, and you will save it. Lose your life and follow me, and you will know life abundant. Because you were created not to demand service, but to serve. You were created to give your life away in the good of others, and there you will know my true blessing. And so we must pray to God that He would give us the grace to believe that we might know fully the blessing that He has secured for us through His life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. And because this is the life He calls us to, because He calls us to that which is good, it's why we call that which sounds so hard, it's why we call even this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Pray and believe with me. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. We do thank You for Your grace. And we do ask that you would give us hearts to believe this message. But more than that, that you would give us the will to obey it and to bring forth its fruit in our lives. That we might know your blessing and that we might be a blessing to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.